It's a Man Crush Monday. Join Professor Buzzkill as he crushes on men from history who deserve more fame and glory. Hello there, Buzzkillers. It's a Man Crush Monday, and as you'll soon learn, I can't imagine having a bigger crush on any historical figure than the person we're about to talk about, and I can't imagine having a bigger historian crush than on the person we were about to interview, and that, of course, is Dr. Vernon Burton, who's been on the show before and who's here to talk to us about Robert Smalls. Dr. Burton, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Always a pleasure, and I learned so much. Well, you and I have talked about I've I've wanted to do a show on Robert Smalls forever. You and I have talked about this forever. It's one of these just simply amazing stories, amazing people. He's one of these amazing people. His entire career is fascinating. His entire career is significant. He's not just a, a war hero. He's, hero. He's so many other things. But before I start rambling and getting all incoherent about how much I admire him, please tell us First of all, who he is. Give us a little little two minute summary of of his life, and then we'll go back and get into the into the weeds and the nitty gritty because the even the weeds and the nitty gritty of this are Hollywood are worth a Hollywood blockbuster. Who was Robert Smalls? Well, Robert Smalls was born on April the fifth, eighteen thirty nine. He doesn't die until nineteen fifteen, and he is active even politically then. He's mm-hmm. an African American who was born into enslavement. His mother, who had been a a, a field hand, became, in fact, uh, a house servant, in fact, uh, taking care of the children of the master, uh, Henry McKee. In Buford, South Carolina, he owned a plantation on the first island outside of Buford, which is called Ladies Island, had about 60, maybe as many as 70 enslaved people. And that's where Smalls was born. If people know about Smalls at all, it is perhaps because of one of the most heroic events in the Civil War. And this is when Smalls, who was very talented, we can get into all the things he had done, but he had become a very talented pilot. They would not let African-Americans actually be pilots, but he was actually piloting the boat. I think they may have called him a helmsman or something, but he was piloting the boat, the planter, had been, of course, commandeered by the Confederacy. It was used for all sorts of things, including laying torpedoes down around Charleston to keep out the United States forces. And so Smalls had planned very carefully an escape. He, from day one, longed freedom and longed education. You can document this through the historical record now. But at a certain point, he had uh, informed the men, the African-American, that most of the crew was African-American and enslaved. There were three white officers. And one night, they decided to spend the night with their wives in Charleston. When they did it, Robert Smalls had told his wife and the other uh, enslaved crew members, then informed their wives. And it's interesting because he had to go the other way, the opposite direction, which would have drawn attention to pick up the wives and family, including Robert Small's children and some others. And then he, in an incredibly courageous and what would have happened to him would have probably been so horrible we wouldn't want to talk about it if he was caught or any of the men, but particularly Smalls, he mimicked the captain of the planter 
the planter or the captain always wore uh, a big straw hat, which he put on. And he's had to sail by about five forts, the last being Fort Sumter. In fact, the crew members, the other that said, go wide from it so they can't see you. But instead, he said, would draw attention. And he went right by them, gave them the signals. They were a little slow, and then they let him out. He is, uh, It's a very early morning in the fog there in Charleston Harbor, but he's going out toward Fort Sumter and the Union passports up to the Union blockade, and of course they think that it's probably the Confederate ship, the planter, that they had put up a uh, white sheet, and at the last minute before they fired on it, one of the, one of the uh, Union sailors, soldiers, saw that it was a flag of surrender, and he delivered the planter to the Union forces, uh, which was a remarkable story, but it gets even better. There, there are five forts he has to sail the planter by, and at each one, if he were discovered, he would have certainly been executed, and certainly horrible things happened to all of them and, and his family and other things. But he mimics Captain Relay, who was the captain of the planter, and gets by. So it's May 13th. And it's 3 a.m., and the sun is just coming up, in fact, when he sails it into the blockade at the time. But uh, later on, he continues in working for the planter. There's some debate, but ultimately it's settled out that he is, in fact, a part of the U.S. Army. They make him part of the U.S. Army, even though he's on different boats and different ships. The next year, he was actually working on the planter as I said, sort of as the pilot, it was at that time the captain was the Confederate James Nicholson. They come under fire at Successionville, where there had been a, a big battle, and Nicholson actually hid in the boiler room. There's some stories that Robert Smalls might have locked him in there, but Smalls refused to surrender and actually save the ship. And this was at the end of 1863, a year, about a year later, a little year and a half probably, before the planter. And then after that, he was actually put in charge of the planter. But because of this, because of these remarkable bravery what he had been able to do, he overall fought in like 17 major battles and a lot of skirmishes that people have counted up. He was taken to Washington, D.C., to particularly uh, with an abolitionist, Mansfield French, a, a Methodist minister who had come down to Buford, South Carolina. There's a whole backstory there because the Union, the United States Army, had captured that area earlier. And even though it is surrounded all by the Confederacy, it becomes a Union stronghold. African-Americans are freed there. They take over the plantations and things start happening. So it's, it's uh, in a, one of the more famous older books, Rehearsal for Reconstruction by Will Lee Rose, tells that story. And a lot of people have recounted it since. And Smalls is a part of that, particularly since his family is, is there in Buford as well. But they go to D.C. to convince Stanton, who's Secretary of War, and Abraham Lincoln, that African-Americans should be able to fight in the war. And they point to Smalls, these incredible heroic accomplishments he has done. And then Smalls gets a meeting with President Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln asks him, why would you risk your life? And those are your family, you know, and what you did to escape enslavement and take this warship and give it to the Union, and Smalls gives him a one-word answer, freedom. And I have argued that that is exactly 
what Lincoln echoes with his new birth of freedom at Gettysburg one year later. So I, I see that as important. And then, of course, African-Americans are allowed to fight for the Union Army and, uh, and Navy. And Lincoln, in fact, says that they made all the difference in this. And it leads to, in fact, blacks, soldiers getting the same sort of treatment ultimately as whites, the same pay. And as Lincoln said in his second inaugural, a rather amazing statement that those who had fought for the unions, the the children and the widows of those would be supported. And he included then of those soldiers, black soldiers, which is an amazing statement at that time. The other thing is he goes into politics pretty quickly. And one of his first events is to go to Philadelphia at the Republican National Convention. And it is really the first time that he deals with segregation. One of the great ironies in the American South is that you could not have segregation if you had enslavement. People mm -hmm. had to be made to be enslaved. And the other thing in American South is you always had to have violence or the threat of violence was always there. I think are two of the legacies of enslavement. So when Smalls was in Philadelphia, he was on a streetcar and they wanted to make him move to the segregated section that was set aside or a second class car. And uh, Smalls refused to. In fact, he got off and walked. But later on, that that very incident was used as one of the examples of this great Union soldier hero being kicked off. He actually got off. He refused to do it. And when then about two years later, about 1873 or so, I believe, Philadelphia actually integrated their streetcars. But I've always found it interesting that Smalls encounters segregation in the north, in the city of brotherly love. Mm -hmm. not Charleston or Buford, South Carolina, where he had grown up. But then he goes, he just continues to go on again. We're, we're, we're still sort of doing just the summary of his political life. He, he just then continues to do, go on from strength to strength. I mean, yeah, he's a publisher, he's a businessman, he's, he, goes, he goes on. It's, the, the whole career is, well, nonstop amazing, frankly. Yeah. Well, he's a very devout man of faith, reared a Baptist. His mother was a person of great faith and gave him. And in fact, one of the things I love is like Abraham Lincoln, I see a lot of similarities between Lincoln and Smalls is they both gave credit a lot to their mothers and their wives. Mm -hmm. This sort of interesting, we have in my generation where one of those begin to pay attention to the role of women and Smalls had always uh, given credit to them. But one of the first things he does is hire a tutor. He wants to learn to read. When he was just a boy, his mother, because he was sort of spoiled, uh, spoiled, if you can be spoiled in enslavement, his life was not as hard in this enslavement as maybe others who were field hands. So his mother, a very wise woman, asked the master would he take him and actually leave him on the plantation for a while. And one of the first things he noticed is when they came in, all the enslaved people were saying, yay, the master, oh, the master. And as soon as the master left, they began to cuss him out and say horrible things. And he realized that there was sort of, as Du Bois was saying, wearing the two masks. The other thing is he was just amazed to find out that some enslaved people could read, and they were actually reading Frederick Douglass. Wow at that time. And that really struck him. So he had this desire 
above anything to learn to read and write. So as soon as he can, and with the money he got from the planter, the U.S. government gave him and the crew money from the planter. We should remind Buzzkillers, by the way, that we didn't we didn't make this as clear as we should have maybe at the beginning, that the planter is a ship. It's a Confederate, it's a CSS, Confederate States or, or CSA, whatever it's called. Riverboat, a big one though, right? A sort of a... Yeah, and it could go, it, it was built, why it was pretty amazing, it could go in shallow water better than others. Right, sorry, and him being a pilot, because we have a lot of younger Buzzkillers, a pilot, at least back then, they probably still have him now, is the person who guides the ship through particularly narrow passages and things like that. I, did, I don't want the buzzkillers out there to think he was an, an early aviator 40 years before the Wright yeah. brothers. But yeah, so he, so this, so when we keep saying planter, when we keep referring to planter, and we're going to do it for the rest of the show, we're not talking about a job. It is, the, it is actually the name of this ship. And to get control of a ship like this, and then for the union to have it is, is great. But sorry, again, I'm, I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do, no, which is, which is uh, I'm getting all excited and, and trammeling on. It is an exciting story, though, and it's hard to get it all in. We, we didn't talk about it. When he turned over the planter to the United States, he also turned over the maps where torpedoes were laid, the notes, all of these things. And then he, because he was so familiar with it, helped get these torpedoes out. That was one of the jobs when he was then assigned was to do these sorts of things. But you're right. He was a real entrepreneur. The interesting thing, he was an entrepreneur when he was enslaved. Amazing. He goes to Charleston from Buford at, as about a, oh, I think 12. I think he's 12 years old. In fact, his mother again convinces this rather, yeah, you don't want to say any enslaver is kind, but he was certainly a better person than most people who enslaved others, Henry McKee. So McKee let him go to Charleston and rented him out. And he made $16 a week, which is a lot of money. Make it. And then McKee gave him $1. He began to save. He would then buy fruits, uh, vegetables, and sell them to get more money. So he starts out lighting lamps, working in a hotel. He loves the water, so he learns everything about boats, including making sails, all these things, and works himself into working on the planter before the Civil War. Then he has already been learning on the planter to the point he's actually able to to be the pilot, even though no African-Americans are allowed to be a pilot on this boat. And then when it's commandeered by the Confederacy, he stays on it because he's enslaved. They accommodate him. It's just an amazing. But he was quite an entrepreneur. He was trying, in fact, to buy his wife and her children. And he knew he had so much money. They wanted $800. He had actually saved 100 which is a lot of money mm -hmm. at that time. And he got permission from his owner, the enslaver Henry McKee, to do that. He was working on it at the time, in fact, when they do this major escape, very dangerous escape at the time. But he continues this entrepreneurship. He buys a newspaper. But the first thing he does, though, then it shows where he's coming at is education. He gets tutors to help him learn to read and write. He starts in Philadelphia. When he comes back to Charleston, there's some wonderful letters just published in a series I do at the University of Virginia Press about one of these female abolitionist school marms who's there who writes about the hero Robert Smalls and how he's asked her to teach him. He buys a building and makes a school for African-Americans in Buford. He supports Penn Center. I'd written a book about Penn Center, which is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, uh, 
school there in Buford. So education is central to him. Uh, as I, we said, he becomes a businessman. And then when African-American males are given the right to vote in 1867 to hold a constitution, this is after the South Carolina legislature refused to approve the 13th Amendment. And that's part of the, the Constitution. Smalls at the Constitution Convention. And then in 1868 is elected to the House of Representatives. And he's the person who, in fact, introduces not just for South Carolina, but for the United States, the first public compulsory school education bill. And so South Carolina is not only first in succession and first in civil war, but it's the first to have compulsory Amazing. public school education for blacks and and, uh, and it continues these kinds of legislation, very sophisticated legislation as a legislature. He goes on to the Senate in the South Carolina legislature and then is finally elected to the uh, House of Representatives where he serves five terms, not consecutive. And it, it gets confusing because there are challenges. But people think Reconstruction ends in 1876, 1877. Smalls is still in the House of Representatives in the 1880s. And we left out that he was also, because of his military experience, you know, first a colonel and then a general in the militia. And that's very important how he used the militia and was able to support African-American demands for rights through that as well for his position with what was the black militia during Reconstruction, a little bit of time afterwards. I, I just find this, it almost beggars belief that someone, A, first of all, could cram this much into one life, right? But B, he did everything so young. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when he takes this CSS planter and pilots it past the Confederate Sentinels and all of that, he had just turned 23 years old. That's correct. That is astounding to have that come. Maybe it's because one of the reasons he's so brave is because he is so young. But, you know, first of all, well, bus killers won't know now, but back in the back in the 1860s and the 19th century in general, harpers were not easy to negotiate uh, until they became dredged and mm -hmm. and cleared out and everything. You had to be you had to know it like the back of your hand and you could you could easily run run aground, been captured, all kinds of stuff. So he's he's able to fish his way through the harbor itself and all the natural obstacles, at low points and eddies and things like that, and get past, as you say, these spaced out sentinels uh, of Confederate guardhouses that are looking for things like this. It, it, it just astounding. Sorry, I'm like, I'm doing no, it again. No, it's all right. I'm just I, jumping I love, up and down with them. I love talking them. about Robert Spalls. I love to hear you be as enthused about him as I have. To give you an idea, uh, first of all, the newspapers said at that time he was the most hated person of the Confederacy in South Carolina. He flew in the face of everything that white South Carolina, their mythology, they had said about the Civil War and slave people, and uh, particularly during Reconstruction. And I love this story I found in a newspaper about two African-Americans who were speaking. This comes out of a newspaper. It may be apocryphal, but it was there. It said two African-Americans were speaking, and one of them said to the other, Robert Smalls is the greatest man that ever lived. That gives you a sense of how popular he was among African-Americans. And then I said, well, what about Jesus Christ? And the other one responded, well, Smalls is young yet, getting back to your point, you know. Oh, goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> and do you want to hear a little story about how 
unknown he was. I, I, I like this because... Professor, I, I want to hear it all, and our listeners lo- want to hear it all. They love your other episodes you've done, and, and this is just... Well, this is so important, it needs to be told. I, I want to be careful because, you know, I can go on forever, and I don't want to do that. But you can understand, of course, when history books were written during the Jim Crow era of why people didn't know about Robert Smalls. But the great jazz historian, the great jazz musician, Dizzy Gillespie, who's from South Carolina, and he attended Robert Small School in the segregated town of Sherrall, South Carolina. There was a school, black school, named for him in the upstate hmm. of South Carolina. And I like to quote from his autobiography, he said he was dismayed that he did not know who Robert Smalls until decades after he had left the South. And this is a quote for his autobiography. The school that I attended was named after this great black man, never taught us three words about him. I was over 40 years old before I found out. A lot of people don't know that Dizzy Gillespie also ran for president. Good tribute question, what South Carolinian ran for uh, for president. And now there are actually books written about Small, but I still think people don't know who he is. There was a South Carolina educational television little program we did about Smalls on 2016 during Black History Month, February. It ran, and then all of a sudden, this memes went viral on Facebook. One person, I wrote these down, posted, never heard of him. If this is a true story, then the American education system has failed me again. Another wrote, stories Mm -hmm. like this. Never made it into our biased public school curriculum. Until now, I've never heard of this man or his amazing story. And, you know, I have been arguing for a long time. We need, and there are some now happening, statues and historical markers of people like Smalls in this time that people call a woke movement and tearing down statues. I think an alternative way and maybe to do both, but at least give us not necessarily, I call them a hero, but role models mm-hmm. who were different, who who went against the grain like Robert Smalls did. Just amazing. I think we've talked before, Joe, but on every single statue in the South Carolina State House grounds, and this is where people love their history. I mean, learn their history. In fact, they love it, too, unfortunately. Is not from what historians write or my grandchildren would have a much better education fund. They learn it from what we tell them is important, that public history setting. Every single statue to an individual on the Statehouse grounds of South Carolina is either to people who supported slavery, slavery advocates, or fought for segregation. I used to say there wasn't a single African-American name on the state house public grounds. And then Strom Thurmond's family doing the right thing, added his African-American daughter to uh, mm-hmm. to the statue. People don't probably don't know who Strom Thurmond is, but he was a longtime politician, governor, and particularly longtime senator of the United States. And in 1948, he ran on what was popularly called the Dixiecrat ticket for segregation against Harry Truman and took about four states of the old Confederacy, thinking that that would make Truman lose. But this is why I think we need to know more about people like uh, Robert Smalls. The former mayor, actually, of Buford, has bought the home that Smalls came back and bought the home of his former master in Buford. And to give you a sense of this man, I I was reading the other day, 
in North Carolina, there was a delegation to meet. And this is about 1898, as I remember, about that time period. And one of the commissioners would not eat at the table with him. So Smalls left, said, I will refuse. You know, we're not, he, he so fought segregation and left. At the same time, when his Henry McKee's widow, who had been relatively, you know, kind to Smalls, he took her in to his own home so she'd have a place to stay and would bring her a meal but would not sit with her because it was not considered, you know, mm-hmm. proper. It just amazes me the complexity and the kindnesses of this Robert Smalls. It also, his buying that home made it into justice deferred race in the Supreme Court because it becomes a case was upheld by the Supreme Court that had great significance when it was challenged by an owner who had bought it from McKee before that this house had been confiscated and then sold to Smalls. It was upheld, and that was used in other cases that when African-Americans bought land during Reconstruction, that they were entitled to it, even though the when whites had lost it because they hadn't paid tax on it during the Civil War. So he's all over the place, even in the Supreme Court uh, mm-hmm. history. And we'll get to, well, we might as well get to it now, about how how and why he had been forgotten. But it seems to me that one of the reasons, I mean, first of all, the story is completely heroic. And segregationists and racists in South Carolina would have every reason to comb through his history, all his work in the legislature, all of that stuff in the Congress and all that stuff, and try to find anything, any dirt on him at all to keep his story down. And they weren't able to do that. Right. Well, so it's not like it's not like we're just hearing about this now. and We still have to do more digging. The digging has been done. And yet, as you say, we I didn't know about him until this well the last year or two. And it, it's it, it's just shocking. So so please tell us in the in the Jim Crow period, well, until until the end of the century, was there any effort to raise his profile? And was it was it shot down by segregationists and racists? Well, you know, the amazing thing, it, it was high. It was important. He attended Republican conventions in the legislature. He introduced uh, bills. Uh, he had articles in, uh, I'm blanking on, on one of the major papers about what we call the Lodge Bill, Miss yeah. Mr. Uh, Force Bill. So he was a major figure and continued, and he was actually appointed by President Harrison as the collector of the Port of Buford, the sort of things. So it was afterwards, just during this period when we created this false image of Reconstruction. I don't know how much we want to do on Reconstruction, but, you know, Mm -hmm. there was this false image of the failure and tragedy of Reconstruction. It's only now has it started to finally be realized that what it was is sort of creation uh, of a myth. It instead was the most progressive period in American history, particularly in the former Confederacy. The constitutions were the best constitutions, most progressive had. And it was only ended, in fact, with the terrorist campaign. People think terrorism begins and with 9-11 in the United States, but African-Americans had lived in a terrorist society at least until 1965 in the Voting Rights Act. So it is the overthrow, the overthrow of Reconstruction, a coup d'etat by terrorists, 
through fraud and intimidation and out straight out murder yeah. that ends reconstruction. It's not voted out. I've often asked people if it was so bad why they voted out. Certain whites particularly did not like that the state was taxing landowners, which also taxed black landowners, but white land and others to pay for things like education or roads or bringing in the kind of things that people needed, even jails and hospitals and uh, things things of that nature. Uh, and then we create this myth. And of course, Robert Small flies in the face of all of this, but how successful he was, yeah. the legislation that he did. And he's there until the very end. He's even at the disfranchising Constitutional Convention of 1895 in South Carolina. He's a delegate there. And this is the one that brings in segregation that says from then on, black and whites can't meet together. And one of the more famous quotes, and this is a quote that's actually on his tomb at the Baptist Church in Buford. And he says, my race needs no special offense for the past history of them in the country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. And I love that quote. Mm -hmm. I really do. Because uh, that's the life he lived. He was a very proud man and proud to be a black man at a time when everyone is mm -hmm. sort of denigrating. Uh, he was extraordinarily brave, as I said, in Edgefield when he was running against uh, Pitchfork Ben Tillman, sort of the prototype of the what becomes a Southern demagogue who uses race, running against his older brother, George Tillman, uh, the red shirts, his terrorist group shows up, and threatens him and tears down the platform. He just stares them right down. So wonder he lived. I mean, so many led black legislators were killed, but he seemed to have always never backing down, never playing any, you know, humility of things like that, but, but just fought on. In the legislature, when uh, whites made it a crime for black men to marry white women or to have any sort of relationships with them, Smalls introduced a bill to make it the other way, that if white men had relationships with black women, I mean, he was he was very smart. I, I can see him being the leader of the debate team. I like to tell, I mentioned earlier, if I if I lived long enough, I'd write a joint biography of Lincoln and Robert Small. So many similarities, and one of the things were these were the two toughest men you could imagine in the 19th. Century. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you are, I mean, we've talked about Smalls, but Lincoln, he is he's either wrestling with people or whatever, or he is then reading poetry, sentimental poetry, and crying. The same things with Robert Smalls. It was a different culture about masculinity then. It was no shame to cry. And one of the great ironies is when they raised the U.S. flag back over Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, Lincoln actually wanted to go there to be part of it, but he they were convinced, of course. All of his aides said, it's too dangerous. You might be killed. The irony, he would have been yeah. on the planter with Robert Smalls. And uh, mm -hmm. instead, he went to Ford's Theater. And that's when he's killed. But it was like for the second inaugural, they had sharpshooters and everything there to protect him. And they would have been more aware than what happened with John Wilson's assassination. 
So when, in fact, Robert Smalls hears that Lincoln is killed, he was a great Lincoln fan, he just broke down in tears. You know, it was not a, a shameful thing for this, as I said, the toughest guy I have ever come across reading about in history to cry when he hears that Lincoln has been killed. Well, Dr. Burton, what, what I don't understand, and, and what I think flies around on Facebook and Twitter and all these things, in fact, I don't, I don't think it does, I know it flies around on Twitter, people are asking, you know, we have all these ridiculous movies, seven versions of Top Gun or whatever, and we have, uh, they're all f uh, fiction, we have this genuine hero who not only deserves a movie, but a series of movies. And uh, I, I see from from his uh, from news reports that Amazon is supposedly working on a biopic uh, since 2019, and that there was another. There's another one being done by the Wolper Corporation entitled Defiant. But first of all, why wasn't something made a long time ago? And second of all, why why haven't some of the really big, strong African American directors and producers jumped on this? Well, you know. Denzel Washington has his own production company and could play Smalls as an older man. You know, I, I, I know this. So we, we, as historians, we always get touchy with the why hasn't something happened or why didn't something happen question. But it is, it's just, it's just waiting there. It's just sitting there waiting to be turned into a great series. I think. Yeah. Well, part of it, and I'm not sure. Part of it is, I think we only in the now when I went to grad school at. Princeton many years ago, you know, late, early 70s, we knew the true story of Reconstruction. But I think it's just recently worked its way down through public school teachers who I really believe do God's work teaching. And that's part of the reason it's such a reaction now. The true story is being told. Mm -hmm. But it seems almost so outrageous. Who would have believed that somebody could have done it? And we've only touched on a little bit oh, of this sure. remarkable career. sure. I mean, even at the end of his life, you know, he's offered to to be a colonel of black soldiers in the Spanish-American War. And he doesn't do it because he's he's ill. But I mean, it just keeps going. And he, he never gives up the fight. He's voting when he dies in 1915. How many people realize that black people were still voting against all the intimidation in 1915? He refused no matter what they said, you couldn't. He voted and continued. So part of it, I think, is this mythology we had to reconstruct. It does not fit with the gone with the wind mythology that we have had. But the other thing that worries me now is while people recognize his centrality, I think he served in in Congress, U.S. Congress, as the second longest uh, serving African American, at least out of Reconstruction times. That it needs to be done because mm -hmm. people do learn their history from these movies. And I think South Carolina, more than maybe if you look at the kind of things that's been done about Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or others, they're not rooted in South Carolina that has a different culture and a history that's been done. And it's just becoming, I think, recognized. But at the same time, I'm worried because we just had the Oxford history published a few years ago of the Civil War. And while I agree with my good friend Heather Cox, how important the West was, Reconstruction was really about the former Confederacy where Smalls was so central. And there's not one mention of Smalls even in this book hmm. on the Civil War. And to me, that's just, it, there's 
no excuse, but I think it's because it hasn't been mainstream or central as it should be. Smalls was on the ground in the Confederate states fighting, even during the Civil War and in the North, and becomes a, he believes in democracy. I mean, he keeps fighting. To the day he died, he thought what did happen happened. The second Reconstruction would come. Yeah. He believed in the faith of the people and democracy. And as that quote I gave you about my people, he believed if they were given the right to vote and they could have the right to vote. To it. When he was in Congress, he introduced bills like that there'd be no discrimination in the armed services way ahead of his time. didn't pass or even get you know out of committee. But he continued to be what in a later generation like Benjamin Mays, the great theologian and president of Morehouse College, who was the mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. Mays, hero worshipped Smalls, who his parents knew had been a congressman. He's born, in fact, before Robert Smalls dies in 1915. Robert Smalls' son lives till 1970. You had all these, mm-hmm. all these sources that were there, if you can imagine, firsthand sources that we could have gotten this story told in amazing ways. And it's an inspiring story. It is a good story of someone who never gave up the faith, who gave back to his community, continuously supporting other people and supporting whites. Yeah. Even white education. He saw that as important. Like Lincoln, again, believed that education was the key to democracy. Well, Professor, I really hope you write this dual biography. I really, really hope. <laughs> I don't think I'll live that well, long, but I, I, it, it is the similarities in there in who they were and what motivated them and what gave them the strength and courage to, to go against the grain. Well, it can, uh, if we it's can— just extraordinary. If we can funnel any of the buzzkill billions your way and maybe get you research <laughs> leave— and and get you to to write it because it is it's so fascinating it's you know the the northern president the southern you know pilot of of a ship you know it it just it's 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 outstanding humble humble backgrounds and believing in meritocracy you know even late in his life there were two black people i spent a long time i read this story in the newspaper where they were whites were going to lynch him and smalls was able to use his influence and his influence on the way African-Americans, the populace responded to him to to stop that lynching, basically saying, I'm going to tell people, you know, to burn down Buford if you have to. And yeah. that stopped it. Uh, um, so, you know, to the day he died, he was fighting for the rights of African-Americans just to be treated equally, yeah. just to be treated equally. It wasn't he asked for any special compensation. Or anything like that. Yes, and I think it shows how, among other things, it shows how much the civil, how much the Gone with the Wind, and the glorification of the South and romanticization of of the South uh, during that period has really has really hurt us. Because after all, Robert Smalls dies in 1915. Alvin York fights in World War One and and has his heroics in 1917. Yeah, there are two mo- There were two movies about Alvin York, eight thousand books, uh, ticker tape parade, on and on and on and on and on. And if I look at the list of things named after Robert Smalls, that there it's not a small list, but it is very. I don't want to say minor because that sounds insulting. His house, of course, in Buford, as you say, is a national landmark. There's a school, but they ought to rename Charleston Harbor 
after him. Yeah. They ought to they ought to have this or, or something or, or the major docks in Charleston or all kinds of things. They ought they ought to have a statue of yes. the statehouse grant along, along with. I will say when you ask about movie, uh, I had been consulted about actually being a consultant for a movie. This is the most interesting thing. <laughs> it was when the NRA National Rifle Association had decided to do this. It was right before there, and I, and I had some concerns about would I really want to help them, but they promised it would be an accurate movie. And, of course, you can see where they're coming from because he's a war hero, and he yeah. fought in all these battles and commanded it. But that was right before the scandal hit and they fell apart. So, But the person who was doing that movie was actually very good about Smalls. I had forgot about that. At one time, there had been a, a plan to do it. But I remember I had real reservations when I found out it was NRA yeah. sponsored. They gave, they assured me that it would not be supportive of just gut. It was about Robert Smalls and a war hero. But as you say, it's much more than a war hero. Yeah. It's, even, it's even an entrepreneurship story. You can see that, that this is a man who made his own way out of no way. Right. And it seems to me that, you know, as Americans and especially, but also I imagine South Carolinians in particular, because South Carolina is the is the state where Fort Sumter is fired on. It's the first state to, to secede, if I'm not mistaken. They could they could start to lift this feeling of guilt by paying attention to people like Robert Smalls, by putting them, giving them their due credit. And then gradually we as a country could start to to see the, the, a more lifting of these sorts of, if our, and now at my age, uh, if I have grandchildren soon, they could be learning about Robert Smalls just as equally as they learned about Sergeant York. And I think they are. I actually think it has begun. I think people are now aware in South Carolina. When I said the other, it was more that I was concerned about this sort of now new national movement of, you know, the focus on the West, which is important. I'm not taking it, but not yeah, what yeah. was going on. I mean, Smalls, as I pointed out, grew out in a culture of extraordinary violence, and yet he faced it square on. I could give you examples, example where people put guns in his face, things like this, and he never backed down. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was, he was that courageous. It was extraordinary. And yet his concern for his community. You know, this belief in education, we have to do these things. We cannot give up. When everybody else thought Reconstruction, he's still fighting the good fight and encouraging people. It was an uplifting uh, message. And I do think South Carolina has sort of caught on to Robert Small, but the story needs to be told. And it, it also tells a different story of Reconstruction right. that we need to understand. Well, he, he could have easily retired or retired. He was only 26 when the war ended. He could have easily mm -hmm. gone north after the war because he was a hero up there. And it could have easily said, well, that you know, I'm done with all that. But no, as you say, he goes back to that little, relatively little town of Buford and works. Mm -hmm. Works, works, works. That's right. It is amazing. Yeah, and he, he had worked from the day he was born as well, the same, the same way, as I said, just learning one thing or another. Saving his money, but it wasn't just saving it. He shared yeah. it with others. He was really, he was really uh, a philanthropist as well. I guess we can use that word from what he did with whatever wealth that he acquired. He shared it for the community, worked for the betterment of the community, and very proud to be a black yeah. man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
I should have brought some of his letters. To we'll the, we'll uh, try to put. There are some re- reasonable links on various websites to some of his stuff, so we'll put those up on the blog yeah. post. But it just remains for me to say, Dr. Yeah. Burton, thank you so much for coming on the show again. As our as our regular listeners know, you've been on twice before. This is your third time, and we hope that you'll keep coming on. Oh, of course, I, and I appreciate you doing this I, again, Professor. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and we will say to the Buzz Killers that please go on the blog post and look for the resources we've put up there to go along with this Man Cars Monday about Robert Smalls, please go to ProfessorBuzzkill.com and sign up for our free newsletter where you get the free episodes. And if you can, please rate it and review us on Amazon and all kinds of other uh, Apple podcasts, all kinds of other platforms. It really does help get the word out. And nobody needs to have the word gotten out more about him than Robert Small. So thanks again, Dr. Burtons. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. And I learned so much from you. Keep up the great work. We need to get our history out to people beyond our small group in the profession. And history, and I honestly believe, as Smalls did, the truth matters. The truth can make a difference. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Buzzkillers, we will talk to all of you next week. 